Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Paul Johnson is my co-host and we are the Last Nighters. You can find us at lastnighters.com and this is episode 193 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 193. You can also find us on the Liberty Movement's YouTube channel. We're talking about Oliver Stone's 1986 semi-masterpiece, Salvador starring James Woods. And we have the great free man beyond the wall podcaster. And he's not just one of the top podcasters in our sphere. He's one of the top podcasters in the world. I mean, if you look at his numbers, he's in the top 5% or top 1%. It's something amazing. And uh, he's been a multi-time guest with us, usually for Kevin Costner flicks, except uh, one occasion we did Casablanca, which he had to do. It's a great movie. It's, he got the perfect 10 for the first time ever on our show. And this one is actually sort of a Kevin Costner adjacent film because we did do JFK with you last year, which was directed by Oliver Stone. And then this was also directed by Oliver Stone. So we're going to do the Kevin Bacon Seven Degrees of Separation uh, to bring this movie into the orbit of the great Pete Quinones of the Free Man Beyond the Ball podcast. Pete, why don't you remind people where they can find your show and what do you do on your show? Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. I pretty much interview anyone I want. And um, a lot of those people end up to get some people mad. Some of the conversations. Um, I have a Substack. By any memes necessary, piquinones.substack.com. And our production company, Stateless Productions, is currently doing the interviews and shooting for our second documentary, which will be on America's police crisis. And our first documentary is on Amazon, on Amazon Prime called The Monopoly on Violence, which is the first feature-length documentary uh, explaining to the world what anarcho-capitalism is. Right. And that is uh, really well done. I, I'm very proud to know you and that you... Have, uh, have you reviewed that on, on this show yet? You know what? We haven't. I've seen it just on a personal level and, and really enjoyed it, but we could review it on here because hit, hit nudge nudge. <laughs> it is a movie and uh, it's a good one. So we should definitely do it. And you know what? I think I know a good guest for it. Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he probably knows a couple things about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again for uh, uh, joining us. Um, we always enjoy having you on. Uh, I know it's not a Kevin Costner flick. Um, uh, he did recently do a uh, Field of Dreams like celebrity game um yeah i saw that so that could have been like you know we could have worked it in but i think this one is is a little bit more prescient and a little bit more like i i, I think you wanted to talk about this because you see some similarities perhaps in what's going on in, in present time um at least that's what i i thought when i watched this movie it is a it is gritty and gripping and uh james woods of course is great he has a fire twitter account uh, much like yourself by the way um he's uh he's pretty badass um but uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed this film. And so I'm glad that you brought it up. And I, I, have, I would not have known to watch this movie had yep. you not recommended it. I'm glad it's one of my favorites. It was when it came out, I was all over it. I thought it was just fantastic. And like I told you before we started recording, we um, I, I've seen it. I watched it back then many times. I just watched it over and over again. I was just enthralled by it. it was On the just, old VHS uh, or rewind uh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> uphill both ways. <laughs> yeah, make so, sure somebody didn't tape over it. Yeah. <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that used to be a thing. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, we can uh, we can kick this off. I usually have the Google description pulled up, which I got to get this uh, going here. Oh, and by the way, that that uh, pre-show bonus content that we were talking about uh, that you just mentioned is available for our Patreon supporters. People can find that at Patreon.com. Uh, or lastnighter.com slash Patreon. Yeah, that's the right one. Okay, so here we go. Is it showing up for you guys right now? No, no, it's not. Not yet. Hold on. I got to hit one more button and then uh, this amazing content right here. There we go. Okay. So here we are with Salvador, a... And Daniel killed himself? What happened? Bye, Daniel. <laughs> See ya. So sentence. Um, James Woods does have a pretty good uh, Twitter account, but he like he put out one of the dumbest tweets I've seen in so so long recently. He said, um, "So when does the Taliban come marching across the Me the un uh, the unprotected Mexican border?" Mm. <laughs> oh, so, uh, I guess it helps if you press the right button. <laughs> what <laughs> boomer moment? I know, right? So uh, we'll take it from the top. I'll, cu I'll cut this little sec section out unless you guys were like roasting me hard. Then I'll just, I'll leave it in. I don't care. 
I was classic, James classic Daniel, man. We talked about it. <laughs> got to leave that in. Yeah, I got to fuck it up, man. All right. All right. So now if I hit the right button and this button. Okay. All right. Much better. Okay. So how we usually start this off is with the Google description. So here we go. Salvador came out in 1986. Drama slash war film, two hours and two minutes in Oliver Stone, Stone Joint, rated R. 84% of Google users like it, 7.4 out of 10 on the IMDb, 89% Raw Tomatoes, 3.9 out of 5 on Voodoo. And apparently, I'm just learning this now, this is available on Hulu, which I do have a Hulu subscription. However, comma, I did not know that at the time, so I actually paid Amazon some rental fees to be able to watch this. I don't feel too bad about it because it was a, it was a good movie. So here is the description. Unable to find work in America because of his penchant for booze and drugs. Photojournalist Richard Boyle, played by James Woods, heads to El Salvador with his DJ friend, Dr. Rock, played by James Belushi, to see if he can get a gig covering the country's ongoing civil war. Boyle decides it's time to flee the country when the violence escalates to a level that even he is uncomfortable with. But his relationship with an El Salvadorian woman, played by Elpidia Carrillo, complicates matters. Release date March 5. 1986 director Oliver Stone box office of $1.5 million on a budget of, I believe, about $5 million that uh, Oliver Stone put a second mortgage on his house to be able to finance before he got an act- another producer on board. Um, but uh, he put his own skin in the game and came out with a pretty decent flick. Now, Robert, I'm going to go to you for your opening salvo, but I'm also going to ask you, do you think that they learned effective torture methods at the School of Americas, such as implanting kidney stones in order to torture their victims? Uh, and only to cure them by waterboarding them with Coca-Cola Classic as the only known cure. Robert, that is that is an overly elaborate uh, torture method. I I don't know if the CIA would just be hanging around, implanting different things into people's bodies with the hope that they form uh, kidney stones. But it is an intense pain, as uh, Senor Quinones and I can attest to. I think, Daniel, you are kidney stone free for your life, and I hope you remain that way for the rest of your life. It is not a pain I wish on anyone else. Um, the movie, though, is, uh, yeah, it's pretty intense. This is a fairly, uh, you know, I'm I'm usually not a fan of war films. I, I like the the spectacle of them, but I'm not generally a fan of the the story or the protagonists in those stories because they're usually fairly uh, limp protagonists. They kind of just kind of go and do stuff and things happen. And, and there's, there's a lot of that. This movie really shows the chaos of war, even though he's not a soldier, he's a journalist covering the wars and he is a, he is a broken character and it's no shock that he goes to broken places uh, that are just as broken as he is. And he can just kind of thrive in this chaos. Not only does he seem enjoy uh, the misery. I don't know. He's trying to find happiness in this miserable place. But he's uh, he's he's actually a protagonist that actually does want things. And he does try and get them. He doesn't have the best arc, per se. He's a broken character at the beginning. And he's pretty much still a broken character at the end. But he does have this woman that he falls in love with that he does want to be better for. So I was rooting for him. There's a there's this kind of competition he has with this proto CNN type mouthpiece lady where she's asking the absolutely ridiculous questions of these politicians that nobody gives a shit about. And then he's the one that's like, you're you're bullshit. You're you're bullshit. Just stop asking bullshit questions and asking him something real. And so you're like, okay, this guy actually cares about the truth. He cares what's happening to the people. I mean, because he recognizes, you know, he actually has some humanity left in him. But uh, there's so much to get into in this film, uh, from the CIA involvement, the School of Americas, and how these people come down to these third world countries and tear them apart. Uh, how the the CIA was backing the the nationalist guy against the the somewhat perhaps communist rebels or were they not? We, uh, it's, it wasn't really clear in the, in the film exactly uh, when they were showing the actual rebel camps. I didn't see a whole lot of communist uh, ideology in there. They just seemed to be people that wanted change and were worth, you know, violently getting it after it. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm curious to hear you guys' thoughts. Uh, it's definitely, uh, a lot of stuff going on in this one. So let's get into it. All right. Yeah, very good, Robert. And um, I think that there was a little bit of 
you know, red flags and fists and, and some speaking to communism. And I think that uh, Oliver Stone is kind of left leaning or at least left sympathetic when it comes to that kind of thing. Now, I don't know how much of it is, were they legitimately communists or not? Uh, and Pete, maybe you know a little bit more about it, but I would, I can imagine that the American foreign policy at the time was, well, these rebels are communists and we're against communists. So we're going to support the non-communists but basically just create these death squads kind of happening, sort of like the what some people view the Chilean model to have been with Pinochet and Allende. Um, I don't know how much of that kind of relates to this as well, but I'm sure it's another topic of discussion. But from my understanding, the United States has met, been meddling in the entire Central and South American continent uh, for decades and decades. Um, a lot of it has to years. do with... <laughs> 200 yeah, years. It's literally yeah, it's, 200 it's, it's years. More than that, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's certainly a lot going on in this, in, in the lead up of this. But uh, my take on it by the end of it was everyone is the villain, really. Uh, they're all doing horrendous shit. Um, James Wood's character even points out to the rebels that when they're executing their prisoners, they're like, you're no better than them. So I thought that that was pretty prescient because I'm sure they had high minded ideals in their uh, motivating the rebellion. And then here they are stooping at the level of what they claim is the, you know, thing oppressing them. And uh, I think that that is uh, expected, but also, you know, a, a little bit ironic, don't you think? The thing I like about the picture is that it just paints Central America in the 70s, in the late 70s, going into the 80s, the way that it's been portrayed everywhere else. And yeah, Stone is more, he's more than left sympathetic. I mean, he's left. And he's, I would say he's communist sympathetic. I think I, I would not be surprised if the words, um, you know, real socialism has never been tried as, or real communism has never been tried has come, come out of his mouth before. And the thing I like about this picture is it just, it's a broken guy, a flawed character who is just out of choices he's got nothing in life and he's just like well let me go do what i know you know he talks about how he was in cambodia and he was the last journalist out and apparently he likes going to like the worst places and you know el salvador at the time was one of the worst places on the planet you just had you know you had hunters you had the kill you had killing fields of their own and i don't think looking back on it there were there were really any good guys at all. I think you had you know, right-wing fascism going up against um, left-wing communism. I don't know that it was full-on communist. I don't know. I don't know how hardcore it was, but you know, from reading Chomsky, um, Chomsky and talking to Chomsky's daughter about what went on in Central America at that time, um, yeah, it was just one of the worst places a journalist would want to go. And, uh, especially a journalist like him who's not hanging out at the hotel and interviewing people, but somebody who's actually going out into the field and doing things. And I think this picture just really paints a portrait of a time when the United States was in a cold war with the Soviet Union and anything that looked like communism, they would, they would finance the worst of the worst in order Just to anyone who would be against yeah. it an impediment to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much the way it went. Now, how does this, well, before I get to that question, um, you mentioned Chomsky and Chomsky similar to stone is good literally on like one thing. Um, mm -hmm. and that is his anti-war stance. I saw him recently advocating for mandatory, uh, jabs, I believe. Yeah. 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 Which seems to run very, very counter to his anarchist credentials and, uh, anti-war stance because he's basically advocating for a domestic war but uh uh stone similarly fairly anti-war as you were mentioning he's fairly left uh he's also pretty good on privacy i know he did the snowden film and, and was supportive of that um but uh I, I wanted to bring up the um sandinistas and the iran contra scandal because that was right around this period of time or shortly thereafter that was um running guns to Nicaragua, right? To finance dealings in Iran or something along those lines, right? Man, there was so much going on. There was so much, so many things going in different directions. So cocaine was coming up out of Central America, coming into, into America. 
being sold, um, that money was going to pay for weapons that were sent back to Central America. A bunch of those, um, a bunch of that money also later on in the decade was making it or earlier in the decade, not so far. I don't want to say the years because I know I'm going to get it wrong and someone will yell at me, but some of that money was making it to Israel too. And Israel was, um, it was basically paying off weapons, Israel and Israel was giving weapons to Iran in the Iran Iraq war that the United States had already given chemical weapons to Iraq for. So the United States was on basically arming both sides of that. I mean, it's, that was a that, cluster. That sounds pretty familiar with uh, things happening with Al Qaeda and ISIS and all that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is yeah. Everybody's like, how could you have Pentagon troops back? Uh, Pentagon troops fighting uh, CIA troops in Syria? And I'm like, look at the 80s. It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, shit's been going on for a while. All right, all right. So um, I know Aldi North was uh, was big into that, and he was famously brought in for congressional hearings and whatnot. Um, but I was, I was very young uh, when all that was going on. But um, as far as what we see Boyle come into, um, it, it really does seem like you've got sort of the grand chessboard at play here, and, and that is, you know, manipulating different factions within countries to get sympathetic governments in place to do the will and the bidding of the United States, and I, I would imagine getting. Um, natural resources secured or things uh, in place for multinational corporations along those lines, which I think gives a lot of credence to the anti-imperialist um, rhetoric coming from the left. You know, they, they talk about the Coca-Colas of the world um, and the wars and, and the military propaganda or the military campaigns uh, that even Smedley Butler brought up um, from the 1920s, right? He was, he wrote uh, mm -hmm. war is a racket. Excellent mm -hmm. book. It's a very short read, but he's basically saying, I'm not here for freedom or, uh, here to you know do anything positive in the world necessarily. I'm here at the behest of the Dole Pineapple Company or the Chiquita Banana Company or whatever it was at the time. Uh, so I'll of course post a link to that. I think there's a free uh, free link for mm -hmm. a PDF to that that I'll put on there. But the other thing that they were doing, and this is I think mostly related to Central and South America and all the uh, interventions that were happening there, is the School of the Americas. Now I know this is a big Alex Jones talking point, um, but Robert, I know that you know a bit about it. So why don't you give us just a rundown of your understanding of it? and how it may play a role in what we see develop in this movie, Salvador. Well, we saw a piece of that, right? In that, uh, what was it? That movie about Arkansas, Nima, Arkansas. Uh, what was the name of that movie? American, American Made? American Made, Tom Cruise. Yeah, 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 Tom Cruise. We saw a bit of the School of the Americans in that towards the end when they were basically training these young, intelligent guys from these countries. You know, they get invited out to... America to learn how to train in all kinds of techniques, uh, torture weapons, you name it. Um, then they send them back to basically do whatever needs to be done. They're just mercenaries to destabilize, you know, rape, murder, pillage, do whatever you need. Uh, I'm sure they've, there can be used in any number of ways. But yeah, they're basically the um, you know the lackeys of the CIA that uh, do their bidding, and um, you know they do their job pretty well. I think uh, Carlos the Jackal was a famous one. Um, there's a I forget they, Allende was that he one? I forget. There's a there's a whole pack of them that uh, I'm sure don't even know their names, but they're used all over the planet, from what I understand. And I'm not sure if the School of the America still exists today. It may still, or it still exists in some form, or maybe it's probably an NGO. Name. It's in a, probably what NGOs do now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, wasn't the School of Americas brought up in um, JFK as well when they were in Louisiana making their hatching the plot, where we had David Ferry and uh, Kevin Bacon's character talking about mm. training? I think for mm, urban yeah, it, might, it may be that old, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know if they would have called it that at that time, but yeah, I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a little, a little, it's in there somewhere, a little vague and fuzzy, but uh, there's so much, uh, so much information being crammed at us all the time. But um, before we uh, get back into w what's going on in this movie in El Salvador, can we talk about uh, Richard Boyle's situation in San Francisco? 
just a little bit because sure. he's he's down on his luck. I mean, he seems to be someone who has put out good work in the past and he's sort of coasting on that reputation, but he's been burning bridges along the way to due to his uh, penchant for drugs and, and boozing and womanizing and all those things. So he's kind of burned all those bridges and opportunities, but he still kind of has whatever that it factor is to be able to get that photograph or the story or whatever it takes in these high, uh, high stress areas. But he is down on his luck and he can't pay for the rent on his small apartment in San Francisco. Now, back in the 80s, it was probably far more affordable on the uh, scale, even accounting for inflation, because it's just astronomical now, even though uh, there's literally human feces on the sidewalks these days next to the needle exchange and uh, all of the oppressive <laughs> COVID policies that are happening there. But um, uh, he he is not doing well. And he's got uh, a, an Italian wife and a son there who leave him. And then uh, he gets uh, he gets arrested by some lady who says he's got 50 some odd unpaid parking tickets, a bunch of speeding tickets. And then he says, well, no, I, it's a different Richard Boyle. That's not me. Uh, and gets uh, booked in the slammer only to then be uh, busted out by Dr. Rock, Jim Belushi, who says his dog is in Dog Dachau, which <laughs> <laughs> turns out he was right. The dog was euthanized. But um, did either of you have any any thoughts on where he was at that time? And that's what kind of motivated him to like go in and seek out this adventure. Well, this is a guy that is constantly trying to stay one step ahead of all the people that don't like him or that he owes money to or that he has pissed off in one way or another. He is the kind of guy that maybe he has some good instincts, but he doesn't follow those good instincts very often. He he's, he's that friend of yours. That's always bumming money off you. Like he, he borrows money from pretty much almost everybody he talks to in this film and you never see him paying it back. So, you know, he's not ever paying it back and people that are giving, put, loaning him the money. know they're not getting it back. They're just like, Oh, Man, okay, here's 50 bucks. Leave me alone. He's uh he's not a guy that really engenders a lot of I think loyalty is the main thing. If he was my friend, I I think I would keep him at arm's length. He's that kind of guy that just I could see why his life is a disaster because he is not a complete human being. He is broken. We don't get a we don't get an idea of exactly why. Um we don't really don't understand his childhood or anything like that, but we know that he went to Vietnam, Cambodia, all these broken disaster war zones from an early age. I mean, he's 40 in 1980 or 42 in 1980. So he he's probably been at this for quite some time, at least uh, you know, probably like 14, 15 years ever since he was a young man. So, uh, yeah, uh, he's I, I don't know. He's he's a disaster. And I don't think he he changes much throughout the throughout the film. He he claims to be in love with the predator girl, which was fun to see her again. Um, and I think that's this is the only other time I've ever seen her. I don't know what happened to that actress, but she was just in these two movies, as far as I know. But it was fun to see her again. Uh, but yeah, I, he's he struck me as the same at the end as he was at the beginning, which is fine. He's 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 an entertaining guy. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder if if what made him uh, have that it factor was the fact that he was so broken and just kind of didn't give any fucks and had nothing left to lose. And so he was willing to put himself in those harmful situations to where he could capture those last moments of, you know, he was the last journalist out of wherever, and he got a certain photo for this and a certain story for that. And, and that was kind of one of the driving factors for him sort of getting by on that, kind of ability to do that, but that was because of his almost nihilistic approach to his own life. Yeah, he was definitely throwing himself. He struck me, him and that other guy, the John character, I think his name was, yeah. they, were, they struck me as like storm chasers that just mm -hmm. throw themselves at whatever chaos they can find and throw themselves in the thick of it just for that, not only the experience and the rush and the exhilaration, but to get that shot, to get those crazy shots. And yeah, that struck, the only people that can do that are ones with uh, pretty much nothing left to lose. Yeah, like they got a death wish going on. Uh, he was in his, I would say, early 30s when the whole Cambodia thing happened, which probably made him famous. And then he had a best-selling book and probably made money off of that, squandered it, was probably invited to all the parties for a short time. He, he appears to me to be like the rock star that was like the one-hit wonder and was wined and dined 
you know, had a, a great world tour and then it all just fell apart after that. And now he's just trying to go anywhere he can to get that rush that he felt at that time. And he's trying to relive that where, you know, he's going to go down there and um, you know, I'm going to go down to a war zone. And what was it? He was talking to somebody and um, he was talking to that John character. And that John character is like, there's nothing for you here. Why don't you go to, I can't remember what country he said. He's like, ah, there's no nightlife there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like, yeah. he's also looking for a party. And he's just, I, I saw him as somebody who was really just trying to recreate like the best time of his life. And yeah, it was questionable as to whether it was and everything. I re- actually remember this being up for an Oscar and like he was the real Richard Boyle was sitting next to Stone um, in the audience and he was drunk as hell. Mm. And he was like, he was just completely out of his mind and everything like that in the audience and everything like that. So the guys, the guy was a lunatic. You know, I mean, I think he's still alive. Um, but yeah, he was a lunatic. And you know, I, I would assume at some point he was a great journalist and a great photojournalist. But, you know, I mean, alcohol does things to people, but more than anything, fame does things to a lot of people and uh, looks yeah. like it screwed him up. Yeah. And seeing all that horror that he doesn't help. It didn't right. seem to bother him, though, because, you know, what uh, Daniel's backdrop and everything, even when they were out there, it seemed like the smell bothered him more than the humanity, you know, than the lack of humanity. Right. Yeah. That, that That's an element I wanted to talk about because it seemed as if the people living there were almost indifferent to it. Like they were aware of it happening, but they didn't seem to really be in fear of it. It seemed to be there was a lot of dehumanizing going on where people were just kind of following orders, going through the motions, not really considering what was actually happening. And, and it feels like that is sort of repeating itself in present time, you know, and you always get in trouble for bringing up what happened in the thirties and forties in Germany and and comparing it to what might be happening right now. But um, the parallels are eerie. And uh, if history doesn't repeat it, it very much rhymes. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing. And in this movie, this period of time, it's sort of a a microcosm of that um, because with all this death and destruction going on, these people are still kind of just living their lives for the most part, unless you're in the rebel camp where you're, uh, one of these uh, death squad, um, you know, with the El Guapo uh, colonel guy going around just killing students for not having their um, sedulas. I mean, papers, please. You know, it's uh, 1930s all over again. And I think the old lady, the old lady at the, uh, yeah, yeah, she said it feels like 1932 all over again. Yeah, yeah. There was um, different groups. It definitely felt felt like there were different groups in the country, and everybody did, had a different kind of perspective and agenda. And I, I appreciated that about the film. It wasn't all just monolithic. Everybody was involved. There were some people that were just trying to go about their lives and kind of trying to ignore it. And then there were the people that were affected directly by the war and were horrified and they were looking for their loved ones and whatever. And then there were those agencies that came in, like the the Catholic nuns and the those people, the aid organization people that were trying to help. And then you had it's the the news class is an interesting little bit Uh, they they seem like on the one hand they're they're trying to shine a light on this horror but at the other time they just seem like a bunch of parasites like they are just there to show as much horror as possible or they are there to push an agenda but they are just there to i don't know i don't know how i feel about it It it's very unsettling to you generally think of you want a news media that's there. It's going to show, you know, shine the light on whatever unjust things are happening in the world or things that you need to know about. But it just seemed like they had, they were so self-interested and this is true of all humans all the time, of course. So it's not anything revelatory, but you know, when, when you, when you, when you watch somebody do a broadcast, you're not necessarily thinking about all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, like all the, all the self-interest things, all the moves that they're making. But then you watch a movie like this, it's kind of exposing that. And you're like, Oh yeah, this is, these are just people They're They're, they're trying to get the best angle on this to further their career. And they want to show the, the crying child as much as they can, because this is going to win them an, an Emmy or an Oscar or whatever. And it, it just, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I think. Yeah. Wasn't it revealed recently that, um, 
Biden had spoken with the now deposed president of Afghanistan and was trying to come up with a way to PR spin it so that it didn't look as bad as it actually ended up being. And the blonde in this giving those softball questions to the uh, the candidate for running for president reminded me of how they kid glove treat um, Biden prior to this Afghanistan withdrawal, totally in contrast to uh, how they handled Trump, which I was not a fan of how they handled Trump. I mean, yeah, they were asking him hard questions, but it was around stupid shit. It was around, oh, that mean tweet, this mean tweet. They didn't ask him any substantive, you know, like actual violations of um you know, human rights abuses or war crimes that he was committing. And it was all about, oh, you said this nasty thing about Rosie O'Donnell or some shit. Um, it's really fucking bizarre, you know. And then, then with uh, with Joe Biden, you know, they, they softball question him. Uh, they give him the questions ahead of time. He has a list of who to call on and when. Uh, that seems to have changed a little bit since this Afghanistan stuff, where it does seem like they've turned on him. But I, I also wonder if that's more like something else is at play here where they're moving him out of the way. Right. Yeah. Which what you really see with um, the press, I just interviewed a um, an independent journalist named Ashley Rinsberg, and he wrote a book called The Gray Lady Wink. And it's all about the New York Times crimes, basically 10 instances where they had an agenda. And once you understand what The New York Times has done, how they didn't even pay attention to what the Nazis were doing um, they made excuses for Stalin. You know, you realize the New York Times is complicit in more bodies than Hitler, you know, and Stalin probably combined. I mean, even the you know, Iraq War II. And what um what he told me was he clearly said, and I, I was happy to hear this from somebody who was probably identified with the left more. He said, Yeah, I mean, they just have an agenda. And he, um, I talked to another guy who his name's Oren McIntyre, and he used to be a journalist. And he said that he has been in press conferences with politicians and actually watched the reporters bully the politician into their agenda, where they're like the the politician will actually on the podium change his mind on something, change his position on something, and he's being bullied. And, you know, that's what Curtis Yarvin mentions Muldbug refers to as the cathedral, where mm -hmm. it's the academia and it's the press it are who are driving this, where they're the ones who are driving politics. And to hear that from, you know, people that are seemingly, seem to be trustworthy, I mean, I don't know how many people I trust in the world, um, you know, just getting that kind of confirmation is mind boggling. Cause yeah, I mean, there was that blonde reporter, I believe she may have been New York times, New York post, something. Um, she was, it was just a joke. It was just, it was what you would expect from like what the, what a Washington post reporter would have asked Biden um, during the election season, you know, on, in the run up to the election, you know, something about, you know, Oh, how are you feeling? kind of stuff. It's just it's, it, the press is yeah, and I asked Rensberg too. Rensberg has studied the press and I said, has there ever been a time when the press has been um, ob objective? And he goes, no. There's no, right. we, there's no way we can. He said, everyone's going to have a bias. He said, you know, your belief system is going to come out in a bias. He goes, but they've always had an agenda. Yeah. And Re remember the main yeah, yeah, it goes goes all the way back. And uh, uh, was it Durante who wrote about the USSR mm -hmm. and how everything's great? I've seen the future and it works. And uh, he, didn't he win like a Pulitzer for it? And it turned yeah. out to all be lies. Yeah, um, he was. He had basically covered up the the famine in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, they killed anywhere estimates three to eleven million. Most people settle on seven. Right, and that's the and, the Holodomor, right? Yeah, the Holodomor. Yeah. yeah, where Stalin stole all the grain out of Ukraine and everyone starved to death. Well, yeah, because it was and it basically what happened was it was calculation. Communists can't calculate. There was there was a famine coming. They knew they had predicted that a famine was coming, but because they had no calculation, they didn't have enough food for the people. So when the famine came and it's like, well, the Soviet people are, you know, the people in Russia are dying. It's like, well, 
we don't even really consider the Ukrainians to be Russians. So let's just go take their food and whatever happens to them happens to them. I mean, that's basically what happened was it was just, they didn't, they didn't plan. And it was just like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, these Ukrainians, they, they absolutely suck. We're just going to starve them to death. It was like, no, it was like, terrible what you would expect from communism they couldn't calculate they had no pricing system and they ran short and a famine comes and it's like oh we need food for our people and you know we consider the ukraine we consider ukrainians to be you know like the unvaccinated yeah pretty much yeah 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 interesting okay I, i i didn't know much about it i know that uh a movie came out the last couple of years called Mr. Jones, which I think um, goes over that a bit. And it's supposed to be a great film. And I, I do want to hmm. do it uh, as an episode it. at some point. If you haven't seen it, uh, do check it out. And let us know if, if it's one you'd be interested in doing. Okay. Um, uh, my family, you know, my, um, my family lost people. Um, you know, my mother, my mother's side of the family is Ukrainian. And when my, my grandmother came here, she was in Moscow. My great grandmother came here. She was in Moscow in 1917. And after the March revolution, she came here. So, okay, yeah, yeah. Then that, that would probably be right up your alley. Uh, you'd have a, a perspective on it for sure. And um, it's interesting you bring up, you know, that it was perhaps a set of circumstances that they thought they had control of that they actually didn't do the calculation problem that put them in that situation. But it was how they chose to then make those decisions that was really, you know, the, yeah. the, the criminal act. I mean, certainly they shouldn't be trying to c- command and control the economy because it doesn't work. Uh, and I wonder if that's similar to what happened with Mao and the Great Leap Forward, where they also had mass starvations due to their inability to plan. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think some of that, though, was targeted, seems to be targeted. And uh, uh, I'm doing research on China for an appearance that I'll be doing, re- I'll be doing that I won't be announcing until Monday. Um, but I've been reading a lot about China, and it seems like a lot of people, including Ping, want to go back to that cultural revolution. And one of the things that they're saying is they're like, we're going to concentrate on America. We're going to, this will be a war, a cultural war against America. And I was talking to Scott Horton today and he's like, they're going to focus it inwards. They're going to, they're going to torture, they're going to punish their own people. They don't even have the, I mean, they're, if you read David Stockman, they're worse off than us. And they became capitalists in what, 1994? They're into the like $30 to $40 trillion worth of debt in like 20, in 25 years. And like oh, their wow. biggest mortgage company, like national mortgage companies about is their bonds are trading at 50%. Like they're wow. about ready, they're about ready to freaking go down the tube. Yeah. China's not taking over the world anytime soon. They could they're, they're I'm scared that there's going to be another friggin' Mao moment there. They're going to have, they're going to institute some more five-year plans. Yeah. I feel like we're already at a cultural war here in the United States. Yeah. And it really reminds me of, uh, have you seen the Yuri Besmanov presentations from the eighties? Yeah. 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 I mean, you watch that and you're like, holy shit, you know, this guy's like Nostradamus, but uh, it's pretty wild. You know, the destabilization. G. Edward Griffin from like 68 and 69. Have you seen those videos? Of G. Yeah. G. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, those, yeah. You could watch those today and they'd still be relevant. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing. yeah, totally wild. And uh, Robert, I know you and I have shared videos uh, with each other of those ghost cities in China that that were built over the course. Has this of- company ever? I'll look it up. Um, yeah, but it, it, they have an American name, and that they were the one. They were uh, this company that's like looking to just absolutely fall apart. Which would they're calling it the Chinese Lehman Brothers. Mm. So they're gonna like if they fall apart, you you're gonna have like a 2008 in China. Yeah, okay. yeah. From and, what and from that what? will affect us too. Oh yeah, no, yeah. From the videos I was sharing with Daniel, um, there is massive, obviously, malinvestment in government, uh, uh, encouraging investment in these ghost cities where they just build up skyscraper after skyscraper after with skyscraper. like the worst possible construction, <laughs> with basically cardboard and glue and duct tape, and people buy them, anticipating them to increase in value, and then they what I assume they try and sell them at some point, but there's this, this has got to be some huge bubble. That's, that's oh. about, that's got to pop at some point because yeah, it's just, it, and there's like nothing there. Lives there or anything. Yeah. It's nobody just, lives there. They're just empty and they're just using them as basically investment. You know, it's like, and, it's and like back in 2006, 2007, when everybody had like two or three houses, just because they were just 
going up well, all the time. It's because they're print they print money out of control. Um, their their second biggest real estate company is called the Evergrande Group, and just to give you an idea, um, their their operating income is down nine point nine one four billion dollars since twenty twenty. Their net income is down one point two six billion dollars since uh, since twenty twenty, and their um, they're up like $147,000 in total assets, but their total equity, total equity is down $54 billion this year. They're, they're done. I mean, they're, it, it's toast. It's just a matter of time. I mean, unless they get bailed out and if they get bailed out there, look at the amount of, of, I forget what, what currency they use there, but they're gonna, yeah, they're going to have to print it. And, I mean, they and here's I was re, I've been reading David Stockman a lot lately, and it's, it's amazing that we got off on China talking about Salvador. But um, <laughs> David Stockman saying it's not like they have a Janet Yellen there. They don't have a Janet Yellen. They don't have a Paul Volcker. They don't have like somebody who can come in and be like, okay, we need to drop interest rates. We need to we need to raise interest rates. We need to do this. We need just to like put a bandaid on it. No, they don't have anyone like that, and they won't bring anyone in from the outside from the outside. So they have like no economists there of any i mean that's how this thing has gotten completely out of control and it's yeah. just going to be it's they're on a suicide course and to worry about that's why like when when i hear shows that like they're you know steve bannon just being this china hawk like crazy i'm like dude they're just falling apart you know i mean you you have to worry about an animal when it's dying you know right. that it might strike out at you and everything but still this is like this isn't long term this isn't china's not taking over the world they are so extended it is ridiculous. I mean, when you start looking into it, um, Daniel LaCaye has some great articles on Mises.org. Um, David Stockman's behind a paywall. But he has, if you run like a David Stockman, like um, his his website and you run a search for China, it's like 70 articles in there just talking about how China is just decimating themselves. I mean, monetarily. And you, know, you remember how Trump talked about, oh, they're manipulating their currency? I mean, you have no idea. I, and everybody's like, well, we manipulate our currency too. No, not like this. They've done worse in 25 years. They've destroyed more in 25 years than the Federal Reserve has destroyed in 107 years, 108 years. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's going to be, the fall is going to be something to see. And I think they're going to, when they do lash out like a, a wounded animal, it's going to be inwards. They're going to punish strong people. And I yeah. think that's going to be, that, that's going to be sad. It kind of feels like what's happening here. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It seems to be, it, it, it's a trend. You know, I mean, where, what are we? It's like, I've seen people like say, oh, January on Twitter, oh, January 6th was an insurrection. And like someone will comment and like tag the FBI. Good God. It's like, what the hell is going on in this country? And it's like, the it's like um, horse dewormer. Yeah. I mean, you realize that meme that meme that the left is using is only like four or five days old. They've only started calling it horse dewormer in like the last four or five days. And it's like blown up to the point where NPR is saying it. And it's pretty, this is unprecedented times. Let me tell you something. It's, um, yeah. well, unfortunately, uh, most people have a short memory, so they forget and uh, it works, you know, on the majority of the non-thinking population. Sure. So, people will run with it. Yeah. 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 Well, one, one angle I wanted to take, because you mentioned these numbers of the losses in billions of dollars for that company, and this sort of relates to how you can lie with media and with news stories and things like that. And, and one of those is with statistics and how you present them. So when you present, you know, they lost X billions of dollars or lost this much equity or operating revenue. Well, compared to what, you know, so like how much scale does that actually mean? I'm not, I'm not like trying to call you out. I'm just trying to make the mm -hmm. point that, this is often how you can back something up with statistics that actually don't really mean anything. Like what if, you know, $5 billion in, in compared to the overall size of that company is like 2%, you know, it might not actually be oh, no. yeah, meaningful, that kind of a thing. Um, but, but I've seen this happen, especially with uh, the pandemic and how these things are not only recorded, but also reported and then presented where you can almost, manipulate statistics into saying whatever you want, uh, depending on whichever angle you, you choose to decide upon. And I really feel like um, they're doing this on purpose so that they have statistical cover for the lies that they're sort of promoting out there. And, and you see this happen all the time. 
uh, probably in all 10 of those uh, news stories that uh, that you were talking about with um, with the reporter who was talking about the 10 things that the New York Times was guilty about. Um, I'm sure that it relates to those types of tricks and manipulations, uh, especially related to s- statistics. So just a, a point I wanted to throw out there. Sure. Right. Statistics are important. So Evergrande, just to give you an idea, um, their total equity right now is $350 billion dollars they're down 54 billion this year. Okay, okay. so that's that's insane. I mean, that is, I mean, can you imagine if you owned a company and you lost that much? I mean, what would your investors think? And that, why do you think they're, see, to me, it's like, I don't even need to look at that. I just need to look at their bonds, which are supposed to be trading at 100%, and then maybe you get a one or 2% return when you cash it in, or trading at 50%. That is, for bonds, that is in insane it's just like what i'm scared of what's going to happen in china because i mean i don't think i think it'll have it'll be there'll be some hurt here um as far as imports go and things like that but i mean i think they're just going to lash out at their people like they've always done i mean that's the history of what they've done yeah yeah. Yeah. And one last thing I'll, I'll make related to this one. You mentioned billions. That almost sounds quaint these days because I, I listened to Tom Woods episode today where Brian McClanahan mentioned quadrillions. And I feel like we're in Austin Powers where he says, Dr. Evil, that kind of money doesn't even exist. But it seems to now. Yeah. Who who knows how much is in circulation now? They, they say it's a certain amount, but who the hell knows? Right. Yeah. All right, well, let's bring this back to uh, Salvador, sure. uh, the movie, and and we should probably actually start winding down because we are close to an hour on this. But um, are there any other points, Robert, that you would um, see you saw when watching this that you wanted to make sure we discuss tonight? Well, I thought there were the two CIA boys that um, show up a couple times during the film. Uh, one, there's a very interesting conversation between one of the, the two CIA boys and Boyle, where they're at some government building and they're catered and hell having a good time but they actually get into it pretty well uh where boyle's trying to get um some papers for his his wife or his girl in exchange for you know shots of the rebels with their weapons and that kind of thing and they're unimpressed but then they get into it kind of like ideologically and at one point the um the cia guys i think when they're talking to the ambassador Actually, maybe it was when they were talking to Boyle, I forget, but they they seem to be very much true believers, like they have drank the Kool-Aid that they are the good guys that they at one point they say any alternative, they, they, they've made mistakes. That's their quote. Hey, maybe we don't do a perfect job. OK, we make some mistakes. All right. Mistakes are made. It's a chaotic situation. We're we accountable. <laughs> but but anything that any alternative to our intervention would be 10 times worse like they are just the fantastic people that are saving the world from these people who just don't know how to you know govern themselves so these people come down really think that they are preventing even worse mass murder and slaughter by putting it now if they're talking about preventing the next Stalin, I guess maybe you could have some sort of an argument there. But they do mention Pol Pot in this, and maybe that's what they talk, you know, think about. Right. But that's, that's, that's using, that's really using your Nostradamus hat that you're going to predict the future that, you know, this guy is going to be the worst thing ever. And anything you do therefore is justified in stopping him. So that just justifies all the violence and horrible things that you do. Look, Hey, I'm trying to prevent the next Hitler here, guys. So you can't hold me accountable to all the nuns I had to murder. I mean, nuns got to get raped and murdered. What are you going to do? So it just seemed to me a very cold and callous and unfalsifiable claim that, hey, we can do everything and we're the good guys no matter what we try. And it carte blanches them because they can use it to justify anything. Anything. Anything under the sun. Hey, it would have been worse if we weren't here. So... We're basically Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. See a lot of that these days, uh, just in the, you know, relation to the pandemic. And I saw something interesting. The uh, one of the inventors of the mRNA technology, Robert Malone, he talks about 
1984, they introduced in the Federal Register the concept of the noble lie. This comes from uh, Plato, I think, where it's okay to lie if it's for the greater good or a social good. And they did this in relation to the polio vaccine, where they said, okay, we need to um, suppress any information that might be negative or cause any hesitancy towards vaccines um, so that we don't compromise the effectiveness of vaccines or whatever. And this is back in, you know, in the 80s, back when uh, vaccines were more traditional. Well, they've been sort of utilizing that on steroids. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we see all the suppression and the, the, um, the ability to sweep away any contradicting or counter narrative information on the social media platforms. Um, and, and it's sort of utilizing this concept that they think they are the on high experts who can deem what is okay to tell the population, even though knowing it's a lie. And we've seen examples of this with Fauci talking about, you know, masks or no masks and flip-flopping all the time, or even in the same statement, he'll make contradictory statements in the, even in the same sentence. And, and they, it's, it's as if they think that it's totally justified because their intention is good, or at least they think it's good. And this also goes into the conceit of knowledge that they can't actually possess, uh, yet they, they seem to think they do. And rant. Good rant, Daniel. I liked it. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Pete, do you have any uh, last thoughts on the movie before we get into um, into final summary review? And I guess we can give it a, a rating out of um, you know number of like money shots because uh, he gets that one like killer shot of the plane coming in, and that's what takes out John, the photographer. Yeah, I think that that plane was probably the most important thing because they kept saying, oh, the United States military doesn't have any anything to do to do with this. And, you know, just at the end, it gets exposed that, yeah, they're they're fighting on the side of the the right. And yeah, it's just uh, the story is old as time. I mean, I'm I'm firmly one of these people that's on the right and everything, but not the right politically. You know, it's like, um, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the right of the culture. I'm not on the right of the, I'm not on the right of politics. The right in this country politically hasn't been, hasn't seen a real right since what the 1930s with the old right, what Murray Rothbard talked about the old right with Taft and Garrett Garrett and people like that. So, yeah, I mean, I just like how it just exposes, hey, yeah, it was the Americans all along. Yeah, and and the rebels were actually doing very well until those two CIA guys got uh, the ambassador to relent and release the hounds, if you will, of the military assets that the United States had given to the Salvadorian army, and that's where the tanks came from and and the uh, the planes and all those things. Because prior to that, the rebels were uh, doing quite well and seemed to have the upper hand. Granted, they were also um, not taking prisoners at that point and just shooting them, which Boyle, of course, said they were being the thing that they were fighting, which yeah. is all too common. Yeah. Let me, let me talk just real quick about that. That was kind of surprising because when Boyle went out to the camps, he put their numbers at around 4,000 soldiers, like effective fighting. Like a lot of the rebels were just like moms and grandmas and kids and just like families. But he, he estimated their number at like 4,000. He's like, these, you guys don't have a chance, but you put them like they had actually had a cavalry charge, which was crazy at one point. Like they were like, the, I think they're called boleros, like maybe like cowboys basically charging with guns. And they they overran the uh, defensive positions of the, the nationalists until, of course, they were countered by the U.S. hardware. But, yeah, you got to you got to hand it to the the bold, quick, fast military action of a, a good old fashioned charge. Well, yeah. And also you mentioned grandmothers and moms and everything. How do you defeat that? I mean, that's exactly. resolve. Yeah, there yeah. were stories from Vietnam. I remember one, they were talking about how um, the helicopter probably came back in and there were arrows in the side of the helicopter. And somebody is like, how do they, how do they think they're going to beat us with arrows? And like, um, uh, like, I think it was a, probably a non-com, probably, uh, probably like a sergeant turned to him and said, how do you think we're going to beat people who are shooting arrows at helicopters? Yeah. And then even in this film, Boyle says you cannot win this militarily. There is no military path to victory in this war because you are fighting people who live here. You're fighting families that are resisting you and will fight you to the end. Afghanistan. It's it's exactly Afghanistan, Vietnam. Every year it's it's an unwinnable war. Yeah. It reminds me of those uh, Second Amendment like memes where 
you know, you need F-15s to defeat the U.S. Army. And it's like a guy in a rice paddy with an <laughs> AK-47, you know, just grinning. Yep. It's resolved. Yeah. It is. It's yeah. who wants it more. You're not going to you're not going to want it more than these families who live here. Yeah. If somebody if one side is there to get companies back home rich and those people are there just fighting for their lives, I know who's going to win. Yeah. And we talked about this, uh, talking about um, Havana and Godfather too, about the uh, Cuban revolutionaries who were, you know, willing to die for their cause, yeah. and just had great resolve. I mean, unfortunately for, for a terrible cause, but uh, they were true believers in it. Yeah. So anyhow, uh, we should probably get into final summaries and reviews here. So Robert, why don't you lead us off on this little trek through the jungle? of El Salvador. Love to, Daniel. Thank you. So, Salvador, a movie I had never heard of, was not aware of. I didn't even in all the Oliver Stone films I'd ever seen, I guess I've just seen the famous ones. You're welcome. Yeah, so thank you, Pete. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um I'm not really sure why this one doesn't get a little more attention. Uh it's quite a powerful film. Um it's not doesn't have any like big major flaws that I could see. It doesn't necessarily have I don't know. It doesn't have that big Hollywood moment in it, like uh, where it's just ripping your heart out or your your jaws on the floor, like some kind of Saving Private Ryan or uh, you know some kind of Spielberg film like that. But it's it's got a whole lot of gritty realism, and it's based. I guess it's based for the most part on real characters, or it's amalgamated, or it's based on his experiences in that in that conflict. So it's, it's it very much feels real. I'm sure it's, it feels very human. Like I'm sure a lot of the details were fudged or whatever. But you could you could buy it. Like even when you know they're even when they get out, even the movie's pretty much over. He's still like gotta like ask for favors to just try and get out of the country and get his girl out of the country. And then they get stopped by border patrol and she gets sent home and. It's it's it, it. Hollywood would have written a more happy ending if it wasn't, you know, if it was wasn't real, or if it, you know what I mean. So, uh, yeah, it's strong. I mean, I, I don't think it's a perfect film. I didn't like Jim James Belushi's acting. I thought I thought that was a little bit wooden, a little bit weird. His delivery was a little strange. But towards the end, when he just plays like a drunk guy, uh, it, maybe it's a little bit better. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, this is uh, definitely worth a watch. I appreciate all the... Oh, man, it's a complicated thing that the U.S. intervention is just a shit show. And you could just... without A world without governments, it would just be... I know people are terrified. Staters are just terrified of this idea. But look at all the horrible things that they do. All these right. people lusting for power and the bodies piling up. I know it's not your bodies. It's not the bodies of your friends. But they are human bodies. And anyway, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's more films like this need to be seen by more people. So I'm going to give this one eight perfect shots out of 10. Uh, everybody should check it out if they haven't seen it. All right. Very good, Robert. Yeah. Eight, eight out of 10 is is high, high praise. And, uh, you know, one of the common arguments is, well, what if a warlord takes over? What do you think we have now? <laughs> anyway, uh, Pete, let's go to you for your final summary review and a uh, number of shots out of 10. Yeah, I just think that the movie is enjoyable, even if you don't believe any of it. If you believe it's really loosely based on fact, I think that James Woods acting was actually really good at this. Um, James Woods back then was one of my favorite actors. Um, he just nailed it all the time and pretty much everything he was in. Um, yeah, Jim uh, James Belushi was kind of odd in this. Um, I'm kind of expecting him to die like at any moment during the whole show during the whole movie um i think it's just a perfect representation of like the horror of american interventionism in a country that is not very far from us you know is and one thing you need to notice is when it comes to countries like that it wasn't covered in the it was too close to cover in the press because it would be too emotional for people if it was too close. 
you can report on Afghanistan and Iraq because people can't even find it on a map. But people can be like, wait a minute, isn't El Salvador just like three countries south of us? What you know, what's going on there? And um, yeah, I just think that knowing that time, reading like Chomsky's Turning the Tide and studying what they were doing down there at that time and what they've been doing in Central America for 200 years, uh, it was it was impactful for me the first time I saw it. And watching it again, I thought it was, of course, it was dated because it was made in 1986, but because it was also a period piece for seven years earlier, uh, you could forgive some of what was going on as far as like the datedness of it. But I think it's something that everyone should see. If people like Oliver Stone, if people don't like Oliver Stone, I think it's a really good movie to watch. And um, I give it seven and a half. What is it? Perfect, perfect shots. Is that what we're doing this time? Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think he called it money shots or, or... or perfect. I think it's perfect shots. Um, I give it seven and a half. Um, I would go to eight. Um, go go to eight and a half if I thought the, I thought, on the whole, a lot of the acting, even from some of the side characters, was just iffy, and you know, it's just it's not a perfect movie, but you know, I think it's an enjoyable movie. I think that. I think that most libertarians and caps would enjoy it a lot. I mean, even if they don't, um, if they don't enjoy war movies, this is, I think this is less of a war movie and more of like a political kind of intrigue movie. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think Robert's kind of the case study for that. Um, Cause not a big war movie fan, but I think you found this to be a good movie, right, Robert? You gave it a pretty high score. Yeah, I did. I mean, usually war movies are just, people going around and doing stuff amid all the chaos. And that's a lot of what this movie is, but James Woods, his acting was fantastic. He really plays this sleazeball really well. And he does have goals. He is an active protagonist of things he's trying to do. Even if he is somebody who I really wouldn't want to know in real life. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. Well, uh, here I go. Um, I also found this to be a very, uh, gritty yet enjoyable film to watch. Uh, it was a little disjointed in some parts. Like it seemed like some of the scenes were just sort of jump cut spliced together and didn't really seem to flow very well together. Like all of a sudden he's looking all disheveled and then the next moment he's looking cleaned up again. And so there's not a real sense of pacing or timing of when these things are happening. They're sort of uh, just kind of jumbled together. And I wonder if that's just a, a, a matter of like, well, we had these certain scenes to shoot and then in the edit, they started putting things together and, and move things around a little bit. But overall you can definitely see Oliver Stone just his fingerprints all over this thing. I really liked the score and the opening musical number or the opening, you know, drum hits with the, uh, with the machine gun fire. I thought that was very, very effective and very powerful. Um, so overall it's a really good film. Uh, I also have issues with James Belushi. Um, I, I liked him in canine. I thought that was probably his greatest work. Uh, well, actually his greatest work is probably being John Belushi's brother. Uh, Because John Belushi was hilarious. Uh, Rest in peace, John Belushi. But uh, overall, a really good movie and one that I had never even heard of. So thanks again to Pete for bringing this to our attention and having it be the the episode tonight. I think it's a it's very very fine film and Oliver Stone does uh, does good work. He's uh, he's a master. He's a pro. So that's my my take. Did I give a score? I'll give it seven seven shots. Seven shots of the. I might switch mine from perfect shots to shots of whatever that um, cheap liquor was. Yeah. <laughs> so you would say that. That's 17. Tic Tac. Tic Tac. Tic Tac. Whatever. 17 cents for a bottle. Right. Well, you know what's yeah. funny? You know what's funny about that? Um, the first time I ever went to Romania, which was not very long after um, communism fell, my favorite beer there was Orsus. And I was buying like 24 ounce cans for 17 cents. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah, that was a very drunken uh, month. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Well, uh, Pete, thanks again for, for being our guest for this one. And uh, people can find you at freemanbeyondthewall.com. Also at the libertarianinstitute.org. You also have a Substack. We'll, of course, have links to all of that stuff on our show notes page oh, at lastnames.com. Let me just let me announce this. I don't know if you guys are on Twitter, but um, Scott Horton announced this today. Um, a week from tonight at Thursday nights, 8 o'clock. Um, Eastern time from now on bi-weekly Scott Horton and I are going to be doing live streams and we're going to be doing a live stream and it's uh, it's going to be called Libertarian Institute um, presents the end of the empire and it will be us commenting on whatever the news of the day and uh, 
just going off and maybe I'll, maybe I'll even get a, a word in edgewise. Yeah. Yeah. He, he can <laughs> run a mile a minute, man. Uh, I just listened to him on uh, Dave Smith show and yeah, he's just so full of just information. His book is jam packed. I, I got the, uh, uh, fool's errand. And, um, what's the most recent one? Um, enough already. Yeah. Enough already. I got it signed cause I, I, I donated some money and, and he was offering uh, signed books. Keith Knight actually told us about that. So we, yep, that's the one. Uh, excellent stuff. Everyone should read Scott Horton, listen to his stuff. And it sounds like, uh, do, do these live streams on Thursday nights at, uh, 5 PM Pacific. We're on, of course, the left coast. So, uh, yeah. 8 PM Eastern. That, that should be really cool. That'll be, um, posted all up. Oh, libertarian. Oh, yeah, we're, uh, it, it'll go, it'll go into the RSS feeds and everything. So, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well thanks again. And, uh, I hope you can stick around for some of the Kathleen Turner overdrive that we will, will do, um, after, after, uh, we finish up here, but Robert next week, we're going to be talking about the news and journalists yet again. Uh, mm. I feel like we, we trashed them a little hard, um, on this one, but you know what? Deservedly so. Well deserved. They are the enemy of the people. And, uh, we're going to be doing the Disney romp newsies with Abby Kleckner. And she reached out to us on, uh, on our Facebook page. She was a student of Dr. Dennis Foster, who has been our guest for, for several episodes, most recently yes. for total recall. Uh, he also did mm -hmm. Logan's run with us and a few others. And, uh, so she is a fan of our show probably by way of, Oh, I know him. I'll listen to it. And Oh, these guys aren't half bad. I know, I know people's opinions, right? They can do whatever they want. Um, so, uh, that will be the show next week. Newsies it's available on the old Disney plus. So that will be what we do next week. Okay. Uh, I don't know how hard hitting a Disney movie about the news is going to be, but we'll see. We will see. And, uh, and maybe Mr. Jones at some point, um, Pete, after you watch it, let us know if, if it strikes you as one worth doing and, and we can, uh, do that for the next one. It's not really Kevin Costner adjacent, but, uh, I think we can give it another pass. I'll Casablanca or tonight's episode on Salvador. Absolutely. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you guys for uh, joining us for this episode. You can find the show and some more at lastnighters.com slash 193. And if you want the pre-show and post-show bonus content, post-show content is called Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which we're going to get into right after this. Go to lastnighters.com slash Patreon and uh, do check out Free Man Beyond the Wall. Excellent, excellent podcast with an excellent guest. And we will see you guys all next week for the old newsies. And I got to find the right button to play us out. And we'll say goodnight from last night, everyone. Peace out.